Blog Talk Radio. This is T-Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it, and we'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you can't continue to listen online, you can dial us directly by calling 347-202-0227 and listen via phone or please, if you are driving about, please, please use your Bluetooth. How many of you think that you're creative? There are a lot of creative people in this world. and Actually, everyone's creative. It's just that some people aren't really aware of how creative they are because they know that they are so logical. Having said that, I'm sure we're all familiar with Albert Einstein, who was a left-brained genius. That's the logical side of the brain. However, Einstein understood the importance 
of using the creative side of the brain, the right side of the brain, so much so that he would sit in his office at Princeton University right here in New Jersey, deliberately bringing himself to the theta state. And that is the third state of awareness, if you will. Beta is the state of awareness where we all are right now, fully awake and aware. You're able to converse and make informed decisions. And then you go to alpha, which is the second state of awareness where you're in the zone, if you will. You know, you've heard, heard coaches talk to sports players about getting into the zone. And we all get into that zone from time to time, purposely and unintentionally. And that's when time just zips by, but because you're so focused on the task at hand, you're really into this space where it's like meditating or doing something that is meditative, like being in nature or walking or gardening, or even when you're doing something that's somewhat rote, like folding laundry or stuffing envelopes. And then the third state of awareness is theta, T-H-E-T-A. That's the state you're in immediately before you fall asleep. And sleep, of course, is the final state, the state of delta. Now, the state that Einstein purposely brought himself to was theta. And he did this because, as I said, this left-brain genius knew the importance of creating. He deliberately tapped into the right side of his brain while holding a rock in his hand so that when he came to stillness, he would stay in theta. But if perhaps he went to delta, the state of sleep, you know, the rock would fall and wake him up and he could start all over again. And he did this because he knew that when you're in theta, that's where you invent and you resolve issues and you innovate and you create. And it's also the state in which we begin to heal. But Einstein wanted to create new ideas and solve issues, and he knew that the right side, the creative side, was the only way to do that. So he practiced getting into theta. Once you create, you're able to effectively implement that which was created by then using the logical side of your brain, the left side. Therefore, whether you feel you're creative or not, you are. You just need to practice being creative. Now, why am I telling you this? <laughs> because tonight, my guest is Dr. Eric Maisel, the author of 20 creativity titles, including Mastering Creative Anxiety, Brainstorm, Creativity for Life, and Coaching the Artist Within. He is America's foremost creativity coach and is widely known as a creativity expert who coaches individuals and trains creativity coaches through workshops and keynotes all over the world. He has blogs on Huffington Post and Psychology Today, and he writes a column for Professional Artist Magazine, and we here at Energy Awareness Radio are so fortunate because he's here to speak with us about his newest book, Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. Welcome to the show, Eric, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you being this evening? <laughs> Hi, T. Great to be with you. I, I thought Einstein carried that rock to beat up competitive physicists. No. <laughs> Maybe he used it for that, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a lot of rivalry among those, those folks trying to come up with the unified field theory. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it probably was, you know, it's a twofer. <laughs> it was a twofer. That's right. Yep. Your book is Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. And you've written so very many books for artists, you know, upwards of 20. And while this is about achieving one's artistic goals, as I was reading it, it really is geared toward anybody, you know, because everybody pretty much has a creative side to them, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. But why now, after writing all those other books, did you decide to write this particular book? What was the catalyst for that? Well, some things needed repeating and some things were new. I've written books on creativity and depression, creativity and anxiety, creativity and addiction. So I've covered a lot of subjects, but the, the subject of getting a grip on your mind and thinking thoughts that serve you is one that has to be repeated over and over again to my creative performing artist clients. So that's why there is the, the mind key in the book. And then there were there were subjects that I hadn't much covered, confidence being one, relationship to society being another, certain kinds of marketplace relationships. So I thought there were some new things to say and also some things that uh, were well worth repeating. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of us know that sometimes you just have to go back to the basics and hear things again in order to really get them, you know. So yeah, that, especially that if, you're, if you're trying to institute a new habit like actually thinking thoughts that serve you, that's not a very easy habit to acquire. And so being reminded... Being reminded that, uh, for instance, 
thinking true thoughts may not serve you. Most most smart, rational, creative folks get held hostage by true thoughts because they think, well, if I, have a, if I have a true thought, I better think it because it's true. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you you pops into your head that there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought, but it's not a thought that particularly serves a writer who's trying to get her book written. You know, so when you when you begin to see that even thinking is an innocent sounding thought like there are a lot of writers out there might do you some harm, then you begin to get a better picture of how important it is to get and keep a grip on your mind. Sure, and get your viewpoints out there because there are a lot of writers, but nobody will write in the same way that you do. Exactly. That's the reframe of there are a lot of writers out there. And you can either you know dispute the thought or reframe it the way you just said, but whatever you do, you can't let it just sit there. Because what happens is if you think the thought on Monday, boy, there are a lot of writers out there, on Wednesday you'll stop writing your book, and you won't even know what happened between Monday and Wednesday because these, these thoughts are corrosive. They don't necessarily take in the first second, but after a few days you're still brooding about that, that old thought about, wow, there are so many writers out there. So you do have to do what you just did, reframe it as, gee, there's an opportunity that so many writers get published means so many writers get published, and I can be one of them. So that kind right. of reframe is important. Yeah, and, and that applies to everything in life. I mean, you can you can use it toward all the artistic things, but it's everything. People do this all the time to themselves. So it's it's good to to have that uh, given back to you again, to have that repetition and to know that, you know, oh, yes, I have to go back to that because that doesn't make sense for me to just believe that and continue with that belief. I can, like you said, reframe it and change it in another way. Um, right. You, you've organized your book around nine keys, which is very interesting. Because it's almost as if these are the the nine, well, like your book says, nine keys to achieving your artistic goals. It can help everyone and anyone from, you know, being a homemaker and being artistic with their children or somebody who's a uh, a gardener and wants to create something different in their yard or the professional artist. But these nine keys are so very important. And as you go through each one and you read the stories that go along with them, I, I think it helps people to release, and I'm sure that's the purpose of doing that. But how did you develop those keys? You know, it, it's hard to know how the the containers form over time. Each book is its own um, contraption. You know, you you have you have an idea for a book that that you want to um, collect some thoughts that have been brewing in you, and then you sit and you create an organizational scheme. So it's not like these are the only nine islands I could have come up with, but these were the these were the nine islands that popped up into my sea this time. And they're great. I, I particularly uh, <laughs> you know, there were a few that I really liked. For instance, the stress key. And you know, who doesn't have stress? <laughs> yeah, well, that was the reason, really <laughs> the reason I wanted to do the stress key is I've done so much writing on anxiety. I've done whole books called Mastering Creative Anxiety and performance anxiety. So I spent a lot of time on anxiety, both discussing what it looks like, what its, so to speak, symptoms look like, but more importantly, what you can do about it. So I spent a lot of time on anxiety, but not so much time on stress. And they're, they're different things. Anxiety is our warning system in the moment. It's that not-so-perfect warning system that, you know, when we're seven, makes us think that there's some, you know, boogeyman in the in the cupboard or something. And when we're an adult, it makes us afraid of, you know, getting up and speaking for two minutes. And as you know, the number one phobia worldwide is public speaking. Right. So many sorts of things scare us in the moment, and, you know, we call, we call that reaction anxiety. Stress is different. Stress is something that builds up over time. It builds up as chemicals in the system over time. And so I wanted to talk about the idea that it's natural, that if you're working on a project for a long time, let's say you're writing your novel, and it's taking you two years to write it, well, maybe you've had lots of sloggy time in those two years, hard times getting the novel written, and now you're trying to get to the end of it and complete it. Well, one of the impediments to completing it is not only is it hard to finish your novel <laughs> for all kinds of reasons, but also the stress has been building up for those full two years in your system. And so you're you're physically more disabled than you might understand as you're trying to mentally complete a hard project. That's why I wanted to focus on um, stress um, a little bit more than I had in um, other books and also 
explain why there are special stressors for creative performing artists. There are special economic stressors and marketplace stressors, special relationship stressors, because a lot of creative people actually prefer the studio, prefer solitude, prefer to get on with their work, don't want to invest too much of their personal capital in relationships, and then end up kind of lonely and cold. So I wanted to speak to that kind of stress, the stress of not having good functioning relationships, and many other kinds of stressors, including existential stressors where we lose the sense that our work matters. You know, who needs another photograph? Who needs another poem? Sometimes it overcomes us, that feeling that that the work we're doing really doesn't matter. So I just wanted to spell out some of these stresses that creative folks uh, find themselves under. And you did a great job with that because you went into not just telling, uh, for instance, the a story about the, the gentleman who met you in the park um, because he was having such a terrible time with the country that he was from, trying to write the book that he needed to write. And, it, you know, you're sitting there with him until dusk, mm-hmm. t- just saying, stay in the quiet, and then a car beeps its horn, and you said, it's just a horn, it's nothing to be frightened of. And as you left, he, he continued to write. It, it, your, that story alone... Mm-hmm. Like you could feel it, you could feel what the gentleman was going through. Yeah, it's the sort of the, the metaphoric equivalent of all the mindfulness practices that uh, that people are taught. It's it's the sort of <laughs> urban oasis mindfulness um, parallel, because if you if you live in a busy, stressful environment, and we all do in one sense, because we all are checking email all day long and doing the sorts of things that make for a busy environment even if you're in a you know rural area you can still keep yourself busy with all of these things if you're living that kind of busy life it it's hard to slow down and more than slow down it's hard to stop mm-hmm. in order to get your creative work done you can't really get your creative work done on the run you have to stop and more than stop and the following is a pretty important point folks all day long are trying to get things right you know, trying to drive on the correct side of the road and pick up their kids at three and do all the appropriate things in life. And then a moment's supposed to come for a creative person where they switch minds and have real visceral permission to make big mistakes and messes because that's what the creative process is, permission to make mistakes and messes. And most people are not comfortable making that switch. They're not comfortable moving from getting things right to, wow, I could spend two years making a mess on a novel. Most people really don't have that permission viscerally. Intellectually, everybody gets it. Sure, there can't be a guarantee that your novel is going to work out. Everybody intellectually gets it, but in their body, they hate that idea that they might spend a long time on something that doesn't work. But you have to buy that idea. You have to buy it on a physical level because that's the genuine reality of process, that only a portion of our work is going to turn out excellent. If we're hoping that everything is excellent, we won't work because that that just doesn't honor process. The idea that everything's going to be excellent doesn't honor process. And it's too bringing in too much perfection to try to be a perfectionist, and that's, you know, that, that never works. It's paralyzing. No, that's right. It's yeah, paralyzing. No, people people want to skip the things that don't work. They They want to sit there and wait until they're guaranteed that the thing that they're about to do will work. They want some guarantee, and you can't have it. You have to show up and either make the mess or make the good thing, whichever way it turns out, and move on to the next thing and show up again and make a mess or make a good thing. That's the only way you can do it. And if you try to wait for inspiration, you're probably going to wait an awfully long time. Tchaikovsky has a a line I like, which is, I'm inspired about every fifth day, but I don't get that fifth day unless I show up the other four days. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I think you have to be, in order to even to get inspiration, which is just a certain way of your brain functioning and, and certain remote ideas coming together for you, in order to get that inspiration, you have to really be working. You have to be showing up. You have to be um, being um, creating a regular routine practice where you, where you know where you are at you know, 6 a.m. each morning, you're there doing your work, and then the inspiration will come. And I think Thomas Jefferson, I I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's the one that said, you know, the world is run by those who show up. So you really do have to show up. I liked reading that in your book. Oh, you have to show up. People need to do that. Mm -hmm. But they also need to make the time because 
uh, one of the lines in your book, and oh, I hope I get this right, is that time disappears unless you actually make it appear by scheduling yourself. Absolutely. And I I try to sell every client. In fact, I pester every client into instituting a morning creativity practice. And I, I like to explain to folks that th- there are three big reasons why it should be a morning creativity practice. And that is a practice before your regular day begins, your, so to speak, real day begins, whatever your real day is. One reason is, is the obvious one. If you were to you know, work on your novel or work on your painting or practice your instrument every morning for an hour or 90 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever, you get a lot of work done. That's the, that's the most obvious reason. Most people don't work that regularly or routinely, so they don't get a lot of work done. So the most obvious reason for a morning practice is to get work done. The second reason is you get to make use of your sleep thinking. You get to make use of the good thinking you've been doing all night long, which just vanishes if you turn to the day. You know, when when we, we sleep, we dream in REM sleep, but we also think in non-REM sleep. We do two sorts of things during the night. We dream and we think. And that thinking can be very powerful and very useful, very creative. We can, you know, be really learning what Mary wants to say in in Chapter 3 of our novel if we allow ourselves to be interested in what Mary has to say in Chapter 3 of the novel through the night. But we only get to, so to speak, take dictation and learn what Mary is interested in if we show up at our writing first thing. So by showing up first thing, we get to make use of our sleep thinking, which actually adds a lot of time to our creative life because now we're also using our sleep time for our creative efforts. That's a big reason. And then the third reason is probably the biggest of all, and that is if you do your creative work first thing in the morning, whether it's writing or painting, whatever it is, if you do your creative work first thing in the morning, you have the experience of having made some meaning on that day, and the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. It's a kind of existential cure or charm or inoculation. You're building up some meaning capital. Most people try to do things the other way around. They, they they have a day filled with semi-boring things, and all day long they're saying, well, maybe I can write this evening, maybe I can paint this evening, whatever it is. By the time evening comes, not only are they too tired to do it, but they've also gotten a little too blue because the whole day has been a little bit half-meaningless. Turning it around and getting to your real work first allows the day to be much more meaningful, and so not only are you getting work done, you're also um, fending off depression. You're setting the tone for the day because you've already accomplished something that makes you feel so good, so sure, it's, it's absolutely going That's to right. You, you you've made yourself proud. That's right. In, yeah. in my language, I'm, I'm often inviting clients to make themselves proud by their efforts. It's easy for us not to make ourselves proud. We know how to do that. You know, an extra hour television, a few more Twinkies. We know how to not make ourselves proud. But it's not so easy to make ourselves proud, and, and this is one of the ways of doing it. And doing that practice in the morning, is that what really makes the difference between getting creative work done and not getting it done? I would think that. For most people it is. For for most people, um, because we have busy and tiring real lives, it's hard to, you know, go to your day job or, or, you know, raise the kids, whatever it is that you do during the day. Most creative people don't have the luxury of just working on their on their art all day long. Virtually, we have no middle class in the arts where you make your income from your art. If you're in the middle class in the arts, it's because you're also a teacher or a therapist or this or that. You're making your basic uh, income from something else. So most people have to deal with a full day of something else. And as I say, most people have neither the sort of the the emotional um, capital or the neurons left to turn to their work in the evening. That's why the morning practice is so important. And when you read um, interviews with, you know, let's say writers who have started writing in midlife in their 50s and 60s, almost always you'll see that this was the change they made. They started getting up earlier. They went, you know, started going to the diner at 4 a.m. and <laughs> getting a cup of coffee and sitting with their laptop in the diner. They made this change. They started their day with their creative efforts rather than staying in what I call the maybe trap, the, the trap of, well, maybe I'll write later, maybe I'll write re- later, because that maybe almost always turns to no. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I can see how that would... <laughs> and that's just not healthy. <laughs> well, it, it's it's that you're disappointing yourself, you know, mm-hmm. because 
creativity is only one meaning opportunity in life. There are lots of things that we experience as meaningful. Creating is just one of them. Relationships is another, activism, service. You know, we could name many things that provoke the psychological experience of meaning. But for creative folks, creating is one such meaning opportunity, and it's usually very high on their list. And if they're not seizing that opportunity, they're disappointing themselves. So it's not so much about, you know, healthy or unhealthy. It's when you have a picture of life and you understand that life is only going to feel meaningful to you if you do X, Y, and Z, then if you're not doing X, uh, you're really um, uh, cutting, cutting yourself short. And one of the uh, one of the chapters is the, the, you talk about the passion key, you know, and that's probably part of it too because so many people, if they they may want to write a book or they may want to paint, but if they're not living and breathing and really passionate about it, they're not going to get there. Yeah, and most people aren't passionate. It's a little bit sort of weaned out of us by our our society where we're not really supposed to look very passionate or you know show public displays of affection or. Not a very passionate culture. So most people have been trained not to be very passionate, and that really harms their ability to create. Um, Pavarotti had a quote I like, which is, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and that's a very different thing. And it is a different thing. I don't think you can white-knuckle creativity and do it just out of discipline. You know, show up for 600 consecutive days to work on your novel just out of discipline. I think you have to be devoted to it. I think you have to be interested in it, curious about it, have some, you know, intensity, intensity even to the uh, extremity of exhaustion. But most people um, have had that flame of passion uh, dampened over time, and we have to rekindle it ourselves. We have to find the way to fall back in love with our projects. That's probably why when we look at a painting or we read a book that's very well written, a novel or whatever we see in the art here, a piece of beautifully written music, you can feel, see, hear the difference because the person that created that art was devoted versus the person who just quickly put something together. That's right. And um, I've done a whole book on the idea of productive obsessions, as opposed to unproductive obsessions. We don't want unproductive obsessions, but we desperately do want productive obsessions. We want to really bite into something and have our mind continue thinking about something over a long period of time. That's how a novel or a nonfiction book gets written, because you're thinking about it over a long period of time. And most people are scared of the idea of productive obsessions, sort of for obvious reasons, because there's so much negative publicity around obsessions, because... Mm -hmm. The word obsession got, you know, hijacked by the mental health world more than 100 years ago, and it got defined as unwanted, intrusive thoughts. Well, if you define an obsession as an unwanted, intrusive thought, then who would want it, <laughs> you know? Right. But that's that's just an unfortunate piece of defining because there are there are two different kinds of obsessions. There are the unwanted ones. There's the hand-washing kind of obsession that no one wants, but then there's the productive obsession of really being in love with, with some idea, wanting to see it to fruition, wanting to spend time on it every single day, that's a lovely obsession and, and something that creative people um, really long for. That makes a lot of sense because you're right. Um, being obsessive or obsessing about things really did get a bad rap. <laughs> that's right. And and we know we know how any one of us can slide into negative obsessions and just you know, keep replaying some conversation that didn't work. Or, you know, we know how, how our brain, our racing brain can lock on to some worry or doubt or fear and spend too much time there. So we, we understand the dangers of obsessing, but we forget about the upside of obsessing. And there's a, there's a big upside to obsessing if you're obsessing about the right things. And that's true of everything. I mean, there's balance amongst everything. So everything has a positive and a negative. It's just getting to the point of balance so that it's working for you. That's right. And I invite um, my clients to really think through what the word balance means to them because everybody pays lip service to the idea of balance. I want to live a balanced life. You know, who's going to fight with that? Right. But it's harder to know what balance actually means in a creative person's life. Picasso would paint for 40 hours straight and then, you know, sleep for 20 is that balance? Well, it worked for him. 
Right. So we we have to we have to discover for ourselves, you know, to what extent we want to exhaust ourselves in the service of our work. Just what balance actually and truly means for us. It may mean working very hard for a certain period of time while we're in the grip of a productive obsession and then taking a real vacation when we don't when we so to speak don't think about anything for a week. So I absolutely agree that we want balance, but it's not so easy to know what balance means for an individual until he or she really thinks it through. Right, and you can't point a finger at someone and say, you know, that's not balance. You need to get eight hours sleep a night. You need to do this. If there's something coming up, whether it's an event or, or something that you need to accomplish within a short period of time, maybe working completely hard and crazy to the point of exhaustion is worth it to get over that hump and then take a little bit of time off. That may be balance for that person. Absolutely, and that may be what your um, career requires. You know, right. if you have if you have a super large audition coming up and you really want to, you know, play for the New York Philharmonic and the audition is coming up, you need to know your repertoire. You know, you mm-hmm. you need to be practicing a lot in that period. After the audition, you can crash. You can go to, you know, whatever, go to Fire Island or go to Rockaway or go someplace. Right. Go after the audition, <laughs> but not but not before. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and yes. we all have the experience of doing of of taking the vacation beforehand you know, procrastinating and not writing that paper in our college class until the last minute and then dashing some, you know, half bad thing out or half good thing out the night before. You don't want to do that as an adult artist. You don't want to be out of anxiety procrastinating and then trying to cram your novel or your painting show or your whatever into the two days before the opening. It it, it doesn't work over time. And it's also going to cause you to do some not really useful things like drink too much and what have you to deal with all of that anxiety. Mm. Mm. One of your chapters, an entire chapter that you devote to artists' relationship to culture and society, and, you know, that it, it seems to me that that would probably task someone who more so who is an artist than someone who is not simply because they have to... They don't have to, but they do tend to look at what society and culture says, and they try to play to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure. That that's one of the pieces of the puzzle to to look out there and try to figure out what's wanted, and then to try to give the world what it wants. And in a person's being, that that almost always flies in the face of a contradictory energy, where you want to do what you want to do. You know, and it's really hard to balance those two realities. I'll give you a, a simple, clear example of that. Um, Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, um, wrote novels which he wanted people to read, and then he threw off these Sherlock Holmes stories, which he didn't think were very important until they took off. And he got so annoyed that people only liked Sherlock Holmes and, and weren't, re- weren't reading his novels that he did, maybe you remember what he did, he kills Holmes off. Mm-hmm. He has Moriarty push Holmes off a cliff. Well, that didn't fly. You know, his re- <laughs> his his readers and his you know his agents, so to speak, and everybody with the financial time, everybody said you can't do this. You can't kill Holmes off. So what happens in the next episode? Holmes reappears, and it turns out he's not dead. He was only badly injured. <laughs> so he, even even Conan Doyle didn't have the kind of wherewithal to keep Holmes dead in this context. The the marketplace is a powerful influence on a creative person, and it's not a it's not a powerful influence if you're not successful in the sense that you know no one's really saying much to you, but if you are successful, I have tons of successful clients who feel um, tremendously pressured by the demands of the marketplace, and some of those demands are contradictory and crazy. Like, I want your signature work, I want you to repeat yourself, but I also want you to top yourself. Well, how do you do that? How do you give a right. person exactly the same thing you gave them last week, only different? <laughs> it's really a very difficult uh, line to walk for creative folks, and especially in the first year or two of a big success, uh, it's very it's very unhinging to deal with the way that the marketplace reacts to you in those first years of success. And yet when you look at various people who are in the arts, even if we just look at people who are designers or architects, When somebody comes out with something totally new, a lot of times it's very strange and not really accepted. But then all of a sudden, 
some one celebrity buys something and all of a sudden it's all the rage and now you've got all the copycat people doing it. These people are amazing to me because they do come up with ideas that are different all the time. That yep. has to be yep. extremely stressful. It, it is, and the, the history of interesting ideas or, or good work is that it's often tremendously poorly received. Um, yes. The Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, which which is the the key piece of the violin repertoire, was booed off the stage as unplayable. Well, it's in a way, it's good to know this if you're a creative person because it reminds you that you have to stick with your own opinion. Your mm-hmm. default position as to whether something's working has to be your own opinion and not the world's opinion because the world gets it wrong a tremendous amount of the time. So it's important that you return to your own understanding of how good a thing is rather than you know trying to put it out in the world too much to ask marketplace players what they think about it. It's dangerous to be putting work out there and, and asking asking A, B, and C person what they think about it. You're going to get three different opinions. You're not going to know exactly <laughs> where you stand. It's important to stand behind your own opinions. Absolutely, and it, it's hard. It must be hard to stand behind your own opinions and not bend toward what other people want when you're really trying to become a professional artist. Tremendously hard. It, it takes a lot of... Um, courage and yes. power to do that. And um, I, I think you also want to pick your battles. Um, if you're, Let's say you're a writer and you have a manuscript accepted and um, it goes through the many stages of a manuscript and it comes to the copy editor, who is the person who knows grammar super well. And so you get back your manuscript with 5,000 changes suggested by the copy editor, which happens all the time. I, I always counsel my clients to accept all of them. Don't get into any battles except for the few that matter to you. You don't want to get into a battle about every comma with a copy editor. It, it'll just it'll just wilt you, and and you won't win <laughs> because right. usually the copy editor's right. So you have to pick your battles. Um, I'll give you one simple example of picking a battle. I did a book with um, Jeremy Tarcher. Um, called Staying Sane in the Arts. I did it a long time ago, probably in 1990 or thereabouts. And just as the book was uh, about to come out, I got a call from the marketing manager at Tarcher saying, we want to change the title from Staying Sane in the Arts to Staying Sane and Solvent in the Arts because we, we, want, to, we, want, to, we want to present the promise that if people read your book, they can make money in the arts. <laughs> I said, no, did you read the book? I'm, I'm saying you can't say that it's unusual to remain solvent. In, the, in other words, I didn't want that in the title. And um, I fought for that one. And the only, really the only power a creative person has is to say no. You know, you, you, is to say, I, you know, I'm, I need this book not to be made or I need, I need this film not to be made. It's, just, it's the big, complete no. It's the only power you have is to drop the project which feels terrible to do if you're the creative person who's been struggling to have projects. But every once in a while, you do have to pick your battles um, or else you're not going to you know, feel proud of yourself. Well, and that, that brings, me, brings to mind the, the, your freedom key, you know, where you talk about you don't have control over what all the other people are doing. Your only control really is to say yes and no, but to influence. And that is, is very, very important, I think, for people to understand that you can influence things, but you cannot control everything. That's right. And if you get that distinction, if that if that switch gets flipped in you where you understand that you absolutely do not have control, but you absolutely do have influence, then you can begin to consider how you want to exert influence. And let me just tie that to the empathy key. In the empathy key, I talk a bit about the idea of just getting... Empathy has some quality of compassion to it, that sense. But in its, in its purest sense, it just means understanding another person, getting in their shoes. And so if you begin to get in the shoes of marketplace players, and let's say, to take one example, understand what a day in the life of a literary agent looks like, where she's getting hundreds of query emails all day long with boring subject lines like, please represent me, or a novel for your consideration, or something. And she's deleting all of them as fast as she can because nothing's grabbing her. Well, if you spend a moment really picturing her life and what she's doing sitting at her computer, 
it suddenly strikes you, I better use an interesting subject line for my email or I have no chance. Kind of wacky that my whole writing life may hinge on whether I produce an interesting subject line for my query email or not, but that may be the case. If you can't get that email opened, then you have no chance. So you have the freedom. You don't have the freedom to get representation from an agent, but you have the freedom to create a smart subject line for your query email, and that's on your shoulders. Yeah, you're marketing yourself at that point, and you have to make sure you get everything across in a very short tagline. That's right. You you have to you have to win that little marketplace Darwinian battle because it is there is competition out there, and you have to win that little battle by having your email opened. And one of the ways I explain this to clients is since the rule is you're not going to make it, and that's the sad rule in the arts, you have to prove the exception. You, my client, if you want to become a novelist who sells books or a painter who is represented in galleries, you're going to have to prove the exception. Because the rule is you you won't have that. That's the rule. So if you so if in order to prove the exception, what that means in part is if everybody's giving out advice about doing X, well that means that all writers are going to be following that piece of advice. To use a simple example, let's say that all writers are told never call a literary agent, only email them because if you call they'll bite your head off. Well, that means that not very many writers are calling agents. And that means if you want to prove the exception, you may want to hone your pitch and get on the phone and give it a shot. The worst that happens is you get your head bitten off. That's the worst that happens is that you have a bad moment. But what might happen that's good is you get right through to an agent and then you get to pitch in a way in which the other writers around you aren't having that opportunity. So there's a lot of boldness necessary in making it in the arts. Yes, and as you said, it takes courage because I'm going to guess that, and I don't know what the percentage is, but there's probably a lot of people who get to a point when they've accomplished what they thought would be something that would be easily submittable and accepted that they can't do the rest because of the rejection. That's right. That's absolutely true. And uh, because we're tricky creatures, we figure out a way to handle the, um, the challenge that you just described. We figure out how not to complete the book. Because we know at a quarter of consciousness, well, if I complete it, I really have to show it and try to sell it. And I don't want to do that. So let me be really tricky and find a way not to complete it. Let me do maybe just another six months of research. Let me do something so that I can call the book not done so I don't have to face the marketplace. So I have to work with clients all the time to have them own up to the ways they're not finishing things so to speak, make them complete things, and then make them deal with the anxiety of the marketplace and have them face these showing and selling tasks. That is just, I mean, self-sabotage is huge. It is, and as I say, we're really tricky. If we we understood ourselves better, we'd stop a lot of these things, and that's why uh, my clients and my readers often stop these things, because once I say it to them, they, they once they see it, then they then they have to own it. But because we're tricky, um, we often don't we don't hear what we we don't see what we're doing uh, ourselves. And in terms of self-talk, the ways that we avoid our work the most nowadays is by saying the following two things: I'm too busy and I'm too tired. That's what folks are saying internally all the time nowadays, and both are true except for the two part. They are tired and they are busy. It's the two part that's the that's the tricky add on. Because they could say, I'm tired but I could spend fifteen minutes on my book or I'm busy but I could carve out fifteen minutes for my book. They could do that, but they're using that I'm too tired, I'm too busy language to get themselves off the hook. Once I say that to them, once they see that, well they can't use that anymore. <laughs> they know better. And they and and they and they typically will just settle in and work because they've been wanting to do the work all along. It's just they've been confronted by a bit of everyday resistance, a bit of everyday blockage, a bit of anxiety, some tendrils of anxiety, some relatively small things have been in the way. And once I point out that these things are in the way, then very typically they actually want to move on and do the work. Based on what you have seen in your practice. What's the percentage, approximately, of how many people actually just give up? 
Um, at which point do you mean? Because there are different give-up points. There's the give-up oh, okay. point of starting your first novel and making a hash of it and stopping writing. There's that giving up. There's the writing 15 novels and having 13 of them published but being bored by your own work and giving up. There are a million kinds of giving up in the arts. So, you know, we'd have to we'd have to kind of look at it carefully to look at the different kinds of giving giving ups. Yeah. Here's one of the giving here's one of the giving ups point and it's very poignant and it it haunts people their whole lives. It's the year from high school to college, or rather it's the freshman and sophomore years in college. Where all through high school their parents have been applauding them for being creative. You know, they've been coming to their, you know, um, annual shows and, and loving their poetry and, and putting their paintings up on the walls and what have you. And then the senior year in high school, mother and father have this conversation, well, which one of us has to tell Joan that she better not be a painting major, she better be an engineering major, that all of this creativity was, was well and good, but it better stop right now. And parents have that conversation with their kids. You know, we're not going to support you in going to conservatory. You, you, it's too hard a life. We're scared for you. We're not being mean. We're scared for you. And so please pick a reasonable life. So Joanne, Joan, whatever I said, we'll call her Joan. Joan starts off in college, and she takes, you know, three writing classes and two engineering classes, and she straddles this fence until she has to declare a major. Here comes one of those giving up times. Many, many young people will opt for law or engineering or medicine or what have you because of the pressures they're under in that year and will give up on their creative dream. That's not to say it's a bad choice because maybe they'll do beautifully as a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, but it's a painful choice and it's going to haunt them and they're going to figure out how they need to figure out what to do about having made that choice throughout their lives. They're going to have to figure out how to incorporate that piece that they disowned somewhere else in their life. Yeah, that's terrible because I know I know a lot of people who uh, did give up a dream of being whatever only to go ahead and do something else, and now that whatever is something they do part-time, playing in a band, you know. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, something exactly. like that. These or, are hard choices without good answers. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't want to say, oh, be a musician or, oh, be an engineer. You know, you don't want to act like one side or the other is the right choice. Both are hard. Both bring challenges. One may bring more financial ease, you know, if you go down the lawyer route or the doctor route or the engineer route, scientist route, may bring more financial ease, but it's going to bring its own emotional pain. And we all know how hard the other route is going to be, the, the musician, painter, actor, you know, I have clients who still try to be mimes and <laughs> poets and other really lucrative professions. <laughs> yes. So so you know when you make those choices, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of challenges. You you better Sure, know. but as a, as a young person, you know, it's, it's very difficult because now you're totally confused. You've you're been totally supporting confused. me all through school and saying I'm doing great. Now you're telling me you're not great enough. It isn't going to work. That's what's totally confused. Here. It's a it's a highly confused time. That not for every you know uh, freshman and sophomore right. in college. Some just start out knowing they're astrophysicists, and by the end of their four years, they're still astrophysicists. Right. But an awful lot of let's call them English major types, people who fell in love with books. You know, if if you think about what's going on here, really, what happened was at five or six or seven or eight, we fell in love. We fell in love with reading. We fell in love with what a book could do. We fell in love with those big images on the, on the movie screen. We fell in love with music on the radio or TV or wherever the music was. We fell in love. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to do that same stuff. And that's been, you know, tremendously important to us all those years. You know, the music we listened to in those years may be more important than anything else in life, certainly more important than school oh, sure. during those years. <laughs> you know, way more important. And so yeah. now this moment comes where we have to disavow all that. And it, it's very confusing and very hard and very painful. You know, when you're working with someone who wants to be an artist, a musician, a writer, a painter, an actor, whatever they aspire to be, what do you feel are, let's say, like three of the most important things that they should know? No, in which let me let me back up and ask a question. Do you mean if they've not yet decided 
And it's a decision-making process where they have decided. No, they've decided, I want to be a musician. I want to be an actor. The first is to show up in a daily way. When you're in school, school provides you with reasons to do the work. If you're an undergraduate in painting, you're probably going to get a painting show at the end of your senior year. Um, it, there'll be a little magazine, a little literary magazine that will publish your poem. As soon as you leave college, all of that's gone. Mm-hmm. All of that setup that supports you in doing the work is gone. You have to figure that out for yourself from day one, the second you graduate, whether it's graduating with a bachelor's or an MFA or whatever it is. As soon as that graduation moment is over, you have to enter the real world. And so the the three keys would be to to recognize that nothing is going to be offered to you the way it was offered to you just two months ago. You're going to have to make all of these offers appear. You have to go out into the real world and make the offers appear. That's A. B, you have to find internal reasons for doing the work. The world is not going to come to you. The world is not beating on your door. You have to find the internal reasons to start your novel, complete your novel, revise it, do it well, put it out in the marketplace. So that's the the second key is you have to find internal reasons for doing these things. And probably the the third is to um, gain some understanding of the marketplace, even if your belief is that you just want to, quote, do the work and you don't want to know about the marketplace. To be sure, there's a sense in which one doesn't want to know about the marketplace too early. You, You want to be in touch with your own desires and your own thoughts and your own way of doing things to begin with. But after you've done that, after you've made decisions about what kind of work you want to do, then you have to figure out what the world wants from you and how you can drop the work you want to do into the world as it's constituted. I think it's really important that they that they hear from the get-go your first point, as you said, that none of this is going to be offered to you at the end of the four years, because I don't think that reality hits people. No, it doesn't. Um, their, their thinking is, okay, I got out of school, now I have to do a certain number of things. I have to find an apartment. I have to find a job. And so they do things which are a little bit demoralizing and um, costly in terms of their of their neurons and their energy. And what they discover is, you know, that two years have gone by and, and they're doing their day job and they have three roommates and they haven't painted in two years or five years or nine years. Time flies in, in your 20s. Mm-hmm. And just the regular tasks of living and, and new relationships and, you know, your first two divorces and <laughs> all, of the, all of the things that we go through uh, are really taking up all of our time. And it's often very hard for creative and performing artists to be still connected to the work they'd always intended to do. The rest of life overwhelms them. Yes. I I can imagine it absolutely would because it just kind of comes up and hits them in the face and they didn't see it coming. That's right. I mean, your your day job boss is is a real person and and the the person who's the taskmaster for your novel is just you. And you come right. in second. <laughs> you come in second <laughs> to your day, your day job boss. Whatever that, whatever, however you've set up your life, you're full of thoughts about that other life. You know what John said to Mary. You know, in, in the back room, and just all of that day stuff preys on us. And it's very hard to get to our work when we're immersed in the rest of life. Sure, it's very hard to get to that creative space and to find it when you're immersed in the rest yeah. of life. I use, I use the phrase creating in the middle of things, that whether you're 22 or 62, you still have to create in the middle of things. Life is always going on. And if you try to make the setup, well, I'll work when X happens. I'll work when the summer comes. I'll work when I get a residency. I'll work when the remodel is over. I'll work when the in-laws leave. I'll work when whatever. You're not going to get your work done. Because you're always going to be putting it off someplace into the future. Sure, and we've all done that with with everything. <laughs> with everything, that's yes. right. And it's easy you know, to do. And in a way, yeah. it makes sense. That, that's that's one of the I don't know complexities or tragedies of the human mind is that it makes sense. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it makes sense. So you know, if you're let's say you're a new teacher, and that's your day job, you've decided to become a teacher. Well, that's stressful and difficult, and you have to create lesson plans and what have you. So naturally, you're going to say to yourself, well, I'll work on my novel when the summer comes. 
well, when the summer comes, I can guarantee you're not going to work on your novel. Right, right. Because you have I refer to it as the I refer to it as the Scarlett O'Hara approach. I'll worry about mm. it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know. Uh, now, as far as a creativity uh, coaching success story, do you have one that you'd like to share with us? Hmm. Um, sure. Um, I do um, five-day writing workshops, deep writing workshops, in addition to the other things I do, and I do them all over the world. And I had a client who was also a personal client. We were working individually, but she also... She had a different art life. She was a performance artist and other things and had was not a writer. And so she started a novel, I would say perhaps four years ago, in um, a writing workshop that I was running in London. And then she continued working on the book throughout the year, but also by attending a workshop I did in Paris. And then she finished up the book in a workshop I was doing in Prague. <laughs> uh, so... She worked consistently, and to make this long story short, even though it was her first book, because it was in a genre that was wanted, because she landed upon an excellent literary agent, because the literary agent knew exactly the right publisher, to make this long story short, she got a two-book deal for $300,000 as her first book. Good for her. Good for her. That's exceptional, and there were lots of pieces that had to fall into place for that to happen, but there's one success story. <laughs> That's fabulous. And I know you, you do teach the writing workshops in London, Paris, Prague, and Rome. You must do them in the United States as well. <laughs> I do. I do them in my home territory of San Francisco. I have one coming up in, I think, early November in San Francisco. But I also do them at all the big uh, conferences, the big retreat centers like Esalen in Big Sur, California, and Omega, which is a conference center in Rhinebeck, New York, and Kripalu, which is a retreat center in um, Lenox, Massachusetts. So I, yeah. I do them. I do them continentally. Oh, and also I'm going to be at Hollyhock this year, which is which is um, north of Vancouver uh, on one of the islands north of Vancouver. Oh, beautiful! That's wonderful. Omega is about an hour and a half from me, and I'm from Massachusetts, so Lenox is probably about four hours from me. I'll have to look you up. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're all beautiful settings, all of those four, Hollyhock, Esalen, Omega, Cripalo, they're all beautiful. And I also go to Roe, which you may or may not know about. It's another conference center on the Massachusetts-Vermont border. That's gorgeous. So these are these are wonderful places to go to, almost irrespective of what's being taught there. <laughs> right, but they certainly would bring out the creativity, I would presume, in almost anyone. They do. Yes. Yes, just from the quiet and stillness. I can't believe we're almost at the top of the hour, Eric. However, before we go, if you would, tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and where they can purchase your book and learn more about your workshops. Sure. Well, the book is in all the usual places, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. To learn about me, come to my site. It's ericmazel.com, and that's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. And you can learn about the creativity coaching trainings I do and the workshops I run, individual coaching, all the usual things. That's wonderful. Again, it's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L dot com. So check that out. Listeners, we need you to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered here at Energy Awareness Radio. Every single one of my guests, every single one of them shares their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes of their day to help us all. And as you are all aware, they do it at no charge. You don't pay anything for the wisdom and knowledge that you receive here at Energy Awareness Radio from all of these wonderful guests who share their time and expertise with all of us. So please be sure to pass the word, make others aware, so they too will be able to grow and learn and make this world better for everyone Thank you again, Eric. I appreciate you sharing your time with all of us this evening. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. It really was. It was very informative. I enjoyed myself immensely. (laughs) Great being with you. Thank you. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead and get out your calendar and note it now so that you remember to tune in next week. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find a, an archive list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year. 
I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. I got a mind.